Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week for everybody globally, maybe only in North America, but football, 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 college week one, week two, NFL week one, uh, in, not for nothing, but I'm here in Philly in anticipation of the opening of the season with the Falcons and the uh, uh, Eagles. Uh, it will have been played by the time this is posted, but the, the legend lives on in Philadelphia. Speaking of legend, the global Pooh editor of Reuters, Dan Calaruso. How are you this fine football season? I am feeling legendary. Um, fresh off my annual football um, ritual, which is drafting Giants for some reason uh, in, the, in my fantasy league. But yeah, so the NFL has had its issues starting another season. Um, but it was, still has the National Anthem protest dogging it. It still has um, the CTE issues dogging it. Uh, and now we throw in the mix gambling and Jerry Jones, the iconoclastic um, owner of the Cowboys, uh, was the first team to step up and do a deal. He announced a deal uh, today. It's, uh, it's Thursday uh, with Windstar World Casino and Resort. Um, and it's the first official casino designation for the league. And this is becoming a thing. And this will become a revenue source for the league. Rick, um, and I know you have some feelings about the gambling mix and you have a pretty good interview with, with Nick Saban today. So. Give me your insight on, on how the gambling is going to affect the, the, the financial tenor of the league. Well, way back in the leather helmet days and when we were putting wooden seats on stadiums, not that long, but when I was involved with the NFL, there was one very clear admonition when we put public-private partnerships together. Stay away from casinos, from Indian gaming, from anything that smacked of gambling. Chinese wall, you couldn't put the stadiums on Indian land. You couldn't use Indian revenue to help finance the bonds. You couldn't use gambling revenue, and on and on and on and on because of the touchy distinction. Well, the slope done slipperied. And the bottom line years later is that the gambling Pandora's box was open at the Supreme Court level. But then how do you monetize? Well, the NBA, as you know, as we flagged three months ago, did a very novel deal. Adam Silver got ahead of it again with MGM Casino's $50 million deal to quote unquote sell the data, but also develop marketing deals. And the states were going to get their money from gambling. The leagues wanted it, but how do you get it? They wanted 1% across the board. That didn't fly. Now it is each league trying to do casino deals individually. The NBA went to it. The NFL said, well, we were beaten out from that one. So last week, they changed a rule in the heat dead of night to allow teams to be able to accept advertising from casinos and daily fantasy sites that operate sports books and shoulder programming during preseason game telecasts. Well, it wasn't that long until casinos developed deals with teams. Jerry Jones, Winstar, Jerry Jones, and the Star, and Pepsi in Reebok years ago set the stage and began the trend. And here it is 15 years later doing the same thing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, Jones again, uh, he has the 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 clout with the you know with the quality and the visibility of the team to make this deal and and to be first in in the mix. And it, it's just it just goes to you know goes to the trend in sports. And it's really funny how you know fantasy was a gateway drug 
to gambling <laughs> for these leagues. And uh, it, it really is, is really manifesting itself in a way you wouldn't have expected. Well, it's all about money, money, money. And we'll talk to a couple of NFL guys next week in our interview. But the interview this week is talking about iconoclastic, maybe the best coach of all time, certainly the best active coach. Nick Saban had a record before he blew away Louisville begin this season of 127 and 20. He had won his five national championships, will win many more. And if he created a Hall of Fame for coaches, Nick Saban would be right there. So here he is in all his glory, philanthropic as well, Nick Saban. So Pop Warner football was a big part of your dad's life. Tell us what you remember about growing up in West Virginia and being your, your dad's son, basically. Yeah. Well, you know, I had great parents. I was very fortunate. But uh, any, any, anyone out there that their dad has been their coach, you know, that, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's an experience yeah. in and of itself. But my dad actually started Pop Warner football in our area in West Virginia. And it was a difficult area because we had like seven coal mining towns that were up in hollows and the players had a heart. They couldn't get to practice because we all got around hitchhiking. You know, I mean, and if the shift didn't change, there wasn't much traffic. So um, a lot of them didn't play sports. Uh, they didn't have the opportunity to get some of the lessons, life lessons that you can learn from playing sports. So my dad bought this little orange school bus, all right, and it had all these quotes like it's, you know, things that would help you be successful, like it's more important to be uh, nice than it is to be important, you know, things like that. that Did were he just, buy the bus with the quotes on him or he put them no, on No, he put thing? them all on there. <laughs> uh, but we would go to practice, he would go pick up everybody in all these hollows, take them to practice, we would practice, you know, take everybody home, take about 45 minutes. And of course I was the first one on the bus and the last one off because that was home, that was the home stop. Um, but he really taught us the the the, the importance of work ethic, investing in your time and something rather than spending it. Uh, you reap what you sow, perseverance and how you have to continue to learn from your failings, uh, how to overcome adversity, you know, discipline to do things right. I mean, the, the old saying that I say all the time, you're going to suffer through one or two things in life, the pain of discipline or the pain of disappointment. That, that was on the bus. <laughs> it was there. <laughs> all right. So all these things go way back. Yeah. But the opportunities that that created, I mean, I know he had, uh, not outside of myself, three players that, you know, made All-American at West Virginia University and graduated from college and had a lot better lives. And, and they may not never have participated uh, if it wasn't for that. And and I'm sure that if you ask any of them, they would say, just like me, that a lot of those things that I learned playing, the value of athletics is really, really important to developing a lot of the characteristics that help you be successful in life. Pride in performance, overcoming adversity. I mean, all kinds of things as a competitor that makes you have a much better chance to be successful in life. It sounds like the secret sauce is the education early on. Well, that's that's what we believe in, yeah. uh, because I think football is the greatest team game that there is, yeah. and um, I don't think it's a dangerous game. 
but I think that it can be if it's not coached where people are doing the fundamentals correctly uh, and, and not putting their players in positions where they're going to get multiple, you know, head banging I, that could, you know, promote, you know, issues. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that we have to do that to have a good game. And I don't think you have to do that to be a good coach. And there's a lot of these old-fashioned bow-in-the-ring type drills that have no place in football, yeah. right, that nobody needs to do. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that uh, we want to get as many of these coaches here and try to show them a better way, uh, that they can be more effective in their teaching progression and actually create more safety for the player. Let's talk about the better way off the field. The Knicks Kids Foundation, what you've done with Terry as far as some of the issues, not only the capital improvements, but the tornado relief in Tuscaloosa. Talk about all of that from your perspective. Well, you know, that goes back to my dad, too, yeah. uh, because he didn't just pick these kids up yeah. uh, in that bus and take them to practice. You know, he sort of adopted them all. Yeah. All right, so when their basketball blew up, he took them to town and got them another one. Yeah. Uh, when the, the rim at the church wasn't shootable yeah. anymore. He got him a new one. My mom always said, if you ever have the opportunity, you know, your dad's legacy was to help young people. You know, do something to do that. So Nick's kid stands for Big Nick, not Little Nick. I'm Little Nick. All right, but Miss um, Terry uh, and the people who support Nick's kids have done a phenomenal job of, uh, I think, being able to create uh, a lot of positive things in our community. You know, we've done the 17 for 17, which is 17 homes that right. uh, we've rebuilt since the tornado for every national championship. And our players have contributed to each one of those homes. You know, we have day, right. player days where they come and work and uh, they give back to the community as well. We've uh, given over $7 million to um, children's organizations in the Southeast um, over the last, you know, 10 years. Um, you know, we, we, we do first-generation scholarships, uh, community center at the church. Um, we're building a, juvenile, a school with the, the Juvenile Delinquent Center um, to promote education, graduating from high school, and teaching a welding trade so these guys aren't repeat offenders. They have something they can do in the community. So um, all these things give us tremendous positives self-gratification by giving back, helping other people, um, don't really feel much that we do that makes us feel better than we when we um, help someone else. And, you know, my dad's old saying was, no man stands as tall as when he stoops to help a child. So um, that's what we tried to carry on, and um, we're going to try to continue that in the future, and we certainly thank all the people who have supported Nick's kids. So just a broader perspective, Pop Warner also teaches leadership and obviously discipline, focus, some of the traits you were talking about. And so how do you make sure that your kids, you recruit and have an obligation long term, do the right thing, say the right thing, behave the right way off the field as well? Well, um, you know, our whole goal in the program here is to help our players be more successful in life. Uh, for having been involved in the program. So, you know, their thoughts, their habits, their priorities, the choices and decisions they make are going to go a long way to helping them create value 
and that starts with the kind of person that they are, um, the kind of character they have, the kind of integrity they have, um, the kind of trust uh, you can have in them. Uh, and that all comes from um, the basic values that we try to establish that they have to buy into to really play and be to the standard as a person, as a student, and as a player that we would like for them to be. And um, we try to create a culture of accountability for them to do that. Um, but I'm very pleased and proud with the success that we've had. But those same things, just so everybody's clear, uh, I had the opportunity to learn when I played Pop Warner. And I think that's the one thing that everybody should really, really focus on is if we don't have these kind of sports opportunities for our young people, where do they learn these things and what they do now? And, um, you know, in some cases, you know, kids don't even play outside anymore. Yeah. All right, but they will go outside for organized activities. And I think these organized activities, the commitment, the work ethic, the discipline, the focus, uh, all the things that you, you mentioned are really important. And where do you get that if you don't participate in something? And substantively, you understand it. It's easy. You're speaking from the heart, but not but. You were a defensive back at Kent State, and then you went through. Now you're on the greatest leaders in the history of the world list from Fortune Magazine. It is kind of interesting. How much of that was intuitive? And how much of that is just learned from heroes and history and, you know, where does that all come from? Well, I think it started when I was young and I think it started with the lessons I learned from my parents. Yeah. Uh, they had a high standard and high expectation, uh, but they also had tremendous compassion for other people. And it was always instilled in me that uh, you need to set a good example. You need to be somebody that somebody can emulate. Uh, that was the expectation. But there was also an expectation there that you have to care enough for other people to help them for their benefit. And the combination of those two things, I think, is the start, fundamental start of being a leader. Because those two things are really important parts of being able to impact other people. And it was always about just do it for one person. I think a lot of people think leadership has to be a group dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's the power of one. It's one person affecting one person who affects another person, and then it just grows. Uh, so I think it started at an early age for me. Uh, and then I think I was really fortunate that I had some great mentors. You know, my high school coach, Earl Keener, Don James, my college coach, yeah. fabulous, you know, example of what you needed to do to be successful and to be a good leader. Um, and so I feel very, very fortunate with those opportunities and then the opportunities I had as a coach to impact other people in a leadership position. And um, that's the one thing that I think I'll miss most about coaching is not being a part of a team and not being able to lead and impact other people. Uh, when the day comes that I can't do this, which I hope is not soon. It's kind of fun to end on this. So I'm a Miamian, and we've got a kid who is a defensive back, but he's being called a Swiss Army knife because he's going to play everywhere. And Minka Fitzpatrick writes a kind of farewell long letter. He says, thank you, Alabama. And he said, I chose Alabama because I wanted to be at a place 
that would push me to become the best version of myself I could possibly be, and man, did it ever. You read something, you hear something like that, and I'm sure it makes you proud. No doubt. I mean, it really does, and that's what we want for our players. We want them to have a great experience here, feel like they've grown as people, uh, and that they have a better chance to be successful in life, on and off the field. Um, and um, I think Minka probably is one of those guys that will be a tremendous ambassador because yeah. of the experience he had here. And I think that's a basic fundamental part of having great tradition, which has always been something that makes Alabama special. So Nick Saban speaks about money, although he does it secondarily. He talks about philanthropy, and he talks about building his program, and therefore he gets to speak about revenue. But a lot of colleges are doing a lot of different things, selling naming rights like never before. Alaska Air did a deal with the University of Washington for Husky Stadium and Southern Cal, and the airline sponsorship they did. Kroger now a 12-year, $22 million deal, the University of Kentucky. But the bottom line of all of that is that Gambling may come to colleges as well, but also uh, naming uh, alcohol revenue, a lot of that. Colleges are generating just as much concern about the almighty dollar as the pros are, aren't they? And what do you take away from all of this? In the Charity Begins at Home department, uh, Nick Saban will make $74 million over the next eight years, I believe, or seven years. Um, and and uh, so Alabama is hopefully getting its money's worth. So when you're paying a coach that kind of money, the financial equilibrium has to go to naming rights, revenue deals, equipment deals, apparel deals, you know, whatever you may have to lock in. So you, you understand how the star system in college football um, and the pool of money that's out there with TV rights um, makes teams excited about getting a, a Nick Saban. Uh, and, and that's really an interesting that's a dynamic that's, that's not going away. We may get some income inequality. We may get a haves and have not situation, but there still does seem to be relatively, uh, on a relative basis, strong pools of revenue for these teams to make a, a paying a coach more than you pay the president of the university uh, worthwhile. Uh, you know, but Saban did hit on one thing, and you know, he talked a lot. It was very nice how he talked about his, his father and, 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 and how he organized Pop Warner Leagues. Um, but he really mentioned um, the joy of football without the contact. And I, I thought that was particularly interesting. Uh, he mentioned drills that you do on, on in, you know, high school teams and Pop Warner teams and kids teams and kids under 12. And it's really, it's really good to hear him talking about that uh, because he has the kind of voice that people will listen to. He's not an aggrieved parent. He's not anyone who's sued anyone. He's not a helmet manufacturer. He is talking about football in its purest sense that people think that he's a, uh, you know, he's seen as a visionary on it. So when I hear him talk about drills that are too dangerous for children to do, I think that's really a worthwhile thing. And especially with the CTE, um, parents, I, I have friends who parents of high schoolers now, and I'm sure you have uh, some, some, you know, people in the same, in your social circles that are the same, but they, they really agonize about letting their kids play football. And it's, it's not a decision I, I always, you know, I say that I'm glad I have a daughter because I wouldn't want to make that decision because I love football so much and I love playing as a kid. Um, and I really did. Strangely, I really enjoyed practice more than I enjoyed the games. I enjoyed the camaraderie, the drills, the fun of it. Um, you know, and I, you know, as a, you always mock me as being a little person. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm a diminutive ethnic. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the idea that, you know, football 
the violence level of football just goes up exponentially uh, with the quality of athlete, it does make the game a dangerous thing. So I, I like it was good to hear Saban talk about safety because that is a direct economic issue. And if the league doesn't want to acknowledge it, they're blind, and the, the league start, has to start to understand the, the other levels of football uh, th that really attract people. Uh, mocking you about diminutively ethnic is just a statement of fact. It has no emotional baggage attached to it. And then more important than that is that Nick Saban can be the voice of reason when he deals with this issue, and you want to hear from him more and more and more, especially when you look at the revenues in the SEC. We find it instructive as we head into the second week of college football that of the top 10 schools revenue-wise in football, there are a clear preponderance from the SEC. Alabama, Texas A&M, Georgia, LSU, Florida, Auburn, Tennessee. What that does is gives Nick Saban a pretty strong and stable perch from which to talk about social change. And of course, you hear from him in a very positive way as we go forward. Rick Harrow, speak with you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. Our producer, Alex Cohen, associate producer, Freddie Joyner, assistance provided by Carlos Waddick, Tanner Simpkins, Jesse Leeds, and Jamie Swimmer and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Ricaro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.